0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 399. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Dan Snow. Dan is a historian, author, reputed oarsman, adventurer, television presenter, and entrepreneur, having founded and now successfully sold History Hit. In this conversation with Dan, we discuss the journey that took him from the creation of the History Hit podcast to the History at TV network. We look at his experience and lessons learned from his entrepreneurial journey. We explore how history telling has changed, how it's different in a video versus a podcast, what content is working, how our viewership has changed during the pandemic, and the importance and role of history in society. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now, let's cut to the show with Dan. Dan Snow, great to have you back on the airs with me, this time on my own podcast. Last time I had you, we were doing the podcast festival, and that was before the big news. So, Dan, you, you in, in August, as I understand it, you sold History Hits. To little dot studios tell me what was the motivation for that
1: well a uh, good question i mean it's this endless conundrum that you have as a founder right when do you sell i mean i'm an unusual founder in that i love what i'm doing i want to continue what i'm doing no matter what so i'm not a founder that was looking for an exit because of it because i wanted a kind of um you know, a, a big, a big, like a big a load of cash, or or was was then looking to start flip and start something else. So, so I actually did kind of want the best home for history here. And it and it is tough being out there by yourself, right? You, you, the mm. assets, it's it's lonely. Um, if things like legal come up, uh, we we well, one thing for example is when we would, you know, when we would uh, license content, it's very difficult to get people to take us seriously. You know, whereas now you know, we go into an organization with a massive licensing department, with a massive commercial department, with a massive legal department. So all of those things I knew would become a lot easier and would probably free me up to do the bit that I'm good at. Well, I'm, ter- I'm terrible at nearly everything else, but the bit I'm all is the kind of creative, right? And we're meeting historians and hearing about archaeological digs that are going on and thinking of fun ideas to do. And, and I was finding, I, I just, it's quite difficult to do that when you're also a founder and you're, you have a role managing a company that's, you know running really lean we we never we were always very lucky you know we we we, um you know we got to break even pretty quick but but it was organic growth slow growth and and i thought it would be nice to meet to hook up with the right buyer and these guys are amazing they have the world's biggest youtube history youtube channel they've got astonishing assets so we moved into their offices they absorbed us you know we, we weren't left you know we could have sold to a I imagine the kind of American based company who might have just left us with the worst of both worlds in a way you're sort of flailing around in London by yourself, but occasionally getting, you know, balled out by uh, like that some scary board who are like looking for, you know, hitting KPI stuff. So, uh, so in a way we, so I feel we, you know, we're in the office, we, we, we pick up the phone all week. I mean, I think we get the better of the deal? We're picking up the phone constantly uh, around, around branded content deals. You know, they've got whole teams that do that already. So, so it feels really good. And as I say, licensing, they, when they're licensing tons of shows for their multiple YouTube channels every uh, month, they're just like bolting us onto it, you know, as just part of the deal. And we're just getting we are just getting huge amounts of content added to the site all the time now, which we wouldn't have, at a price and a volume that we would not have been able to get by ourselves, just like no mm. way at all. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess part of me thinks I'll never be that sort of, 65 you know turns I won't be the Rupert Murdoch with a sort of sitting on top of a media empire when I'm An old guy, but I'm not sure I'm super nervous about it. I think I'm okay with that and I Have got a deal that allows me to be creative and you've been very much involved in the next few years and So I think it's work. it's working and it's working really well. It's working really well at the moment uh, But yes, it's it's that age-old thing that I'm sure founders everywhere are kind of wrestling with.
0: so now you're, you're sort of a, a corporate man, quote-unquote, obviously with freedoms all the same. In in the passage that you had during it by yourself, what would what be the lessons learned if you're talking to another entrepreneur who's saying, I want to launch my own online TV? Or is there anything else that you would share in terms of how you went about that? I mean, you obviously did well getting a break even so quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I think I would say it's like any advice that anyone will give you and we were undercapitalized right so we didn't have enough money um and therefore that becomes you're just cash constrained uh if you're prepared to do that maybe if you're super young starting out it's exciting you're prepared to do, like heavy lifting yourself learn how to be a, be a office manager production manager do your own legal you know all that kind of stuff then that's great um, it's pretty tough if you uh you know if it, you know you, you you read about like masterclass in the us or blinkist mm-hmm. and they just they just launch with like just massive amounts of money right mm-hmm. and and that i think obviously brings huge inefficiencies i mean it's very interesting we got investment at the start and actually we wasted a good nothing serious but a good chunk of money straight off the bat we did waste when you've got extra money in the system you will yeah. waste it it's fascinating you know so and we were at our best when we were running really really lean so uh that there are there are different school thoughts but I think if if I was at my age now and I was going to start something again I'd probably want it pretty well capitalized I think I'd want to go into it with some really good people I mean you know you need to walk into a room and think everyone in this room is better than I am uh and and that's the place we're at now thankfully but uh it it is that that's always it's always an it's it's, uh, it's a good feeling there's nothing better than when your your people that are working with you are are bringing you like great solutions, right? Fantastic solutions and opportunities, rather than bringing you kind of bad news, <laughs> right? You know,
0: or, <laughs> or, or tisking you or how, telling you off,
1: yeah, or like, how do we get out of this? And you know, so um, yeah, advice though, I think, uh, yeah, be be it, it's t- look, it, it's also really tough. You know, never believe the hockey. I mean, I, this is probably advice for investors more than startup people, but never believed the hockey stick uh, growth projections, right? I mean, there's, there's so much, uh, there's so much more friction. I mean, Netflix went big. So this is four, five years ago after Netflix had really, or it was, you know, we look back, it was sort of Netflix. And then it was um, uh, House of Cards as well, or different networks. So it was just TV on demand, streaming on demand was becoming huge. There were a lot of white label solutions out there that allowed people to do it without, eye-watering large amounts of money and we thought hey this is great no one's doing this history this is so easy we'll be at you know we'll be at ten thousand subscribers fifty pound revenue a month by you know month six And just that just didn't happen right <laughs> um it's just a lot it was in a sp-
0: it was in a spreadsheet
1: it was in yeah. a spreadsheet you know and then it just didn't happen but i mean that's maybe that's the point you've got to keep that you've got to keep that some optimism i guess but yeah um choose choose your colleagues really carefully. Um it's tough in a startup, you know, when you're not I mean, I'm sure my colleagues got very frustrated at me because, you know, if you're not paying if you're not paying market rate, you can't blame people for you know, I would sort of go off with the kids for three weeks at Easter or something, you know, and then it'd be like, What this guy, what the hell's <laughs> going on with this guy? So I kind of I have great sympathy for my colleagues who must I was a complete div. But um well, I so I guess that's that's another problem with with kind of Businesses where people are helping out and and you're not paying mm-hmm. properly and yeah so yeah advice God it's it's a, hey
0: listen it's a uh, it's it's always messy doing startups and it was just interesting to hear that from you and one of the things you obviously did that put you on this path is to move from podcasting to TV and I was curious because when I read the Guardian write up in August it, it started off with Oh, Dan Snow's podcast network history had just been sold.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. They
0: they named you a, 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 as a podcast network. I was like, well, that's peculiar because I, I really think you're much bigger than that.
1: Yeah, it's very odd. I mean, actually, it's just completely bizarre how weird the reporting. I mean, I to be honest, there's even subscribers of the TV channel who still go, "I love listening to your podcast," and they mean <sighs> the channel. I mean, tech. So uh, the tech literacy in the world. You know, FOD subscription video on demand is a, obviously just a, no one's ever heard of it really outside the sort of little few of us that do it professionally. But yeah, it's funny. Um The podcast, obviously, that's the tip of the that's the uh, the big bit of the funnel that everyone talks about. That's the free mm-hmm. bit. So that's now on a million listens a, a week, and it's you know very well known, I guess. And so when people go, you sort of half people, even though you'd expect media journalists to be a bit, a bit better than that, but people go, I guess the Dan Snow history at podcast. That's what it must be, and without realizing that it's the subscription video that is the engine of the whole thing. In fact, Uh, that's the
0: money-making part.
1: That's the money maker, and it's the legacy bit, and it's the bit that doesn't depend on some goon just bloviating and sort of talking nonsense, and and also isn't dependent on very fluctuating ad revenue. There's all sorts of reasons why I'm still most excited by the TV recurring revenue on the TV and the subscribers rather than pods. And if you look at the uh cpms on on historical on on, first of all websites then youtube you know it's pretty scary that they they can they get it they change quite a lot and so i do think we're living through a bit of a podcast you know golden age at the moment great long may it last but i I find it hard to believe you're going to see cpms staying that way for a long time and that's why all, that's why all this legacy talent is piling into podcasts it's crazy Like you open mm. another every time you open it it's like jeremy paxman I, you know, i'm sure people listen to this all over the world but for, for those who don't know in the, the uk scene i mean you, you've now reached a point and i think the us has reached out where the biggest names in uk broadcasting are now launching their own pods weekly mm. uh and i you know i was just very very lucky i got ahead of it five or six five years ahead of it really but
0: a couple of things that are interesting are in parallels for me. One is with podcasting. There's a an asynchronous element to it. There's not a a rigidity to the programming. It can be 42 minutes long or 63 or whatever. And similarly, as opposed to the television model of 27.42 seconds for a half hour. 52 for the hour with the advertisements and all that there's sort of such a a canned recipe for traditional television stuff both on history hit tv and in your podcasts. there's that sort of fluidity and less rigidity to the formatting do you agree with that
1: yeah i mean that's what you've picked out exactly what was so attractive to me as a guy 15 years into a conventional broadcast career uh the whole, the whole process of, of traditional media is um, as everybody knows, you know, best, best of all, um, but is, is, it's very, very inflexible, right? So you, you go through a commissioning process, which is brutal. The the final product comes out is very, we, we you know, there's this weird, what's that thing called divert conversionary evolution, whatever, where all, T, all TV shows start to look the same, you know, it's, and it's funny. I'm very bad. I've, I've got Stockholm syndrome. Now I'm, I'm writing scripts for TV shows on the, on the, TV channel on the History Hit TV and uh, and I'll kind of write a pre-title and I'll put a title sequence in then I'll have a a, and I'll go oh my god I'm writing this like it's for BBC Two about 10 years ago I need you know wow it's quite it's quite scary when you have a blank canvas and you've got a group of very loyal subscribers that just want to see history output and and they're not super worried if you don't tell you know give them their dessert first which is what you're going to do in most TV shows these days Mm -hmm. you know you show them the clips they're about to see so Um, Yeah, the the length is is very exciting, right? I mean, I, 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 you know, some some podcasters we've done it once, twice. You put out like a three minute episode for a laugh one day, probably just to mess with chart position and annoy the competition, right? But you put out like a short thing, and and then for Christmas, I love the fact you go, "This guys, this is two hours. This one, this is like a two hour sit down with some absolute, you know, Mary Beard or or some hero of the kind of historical firmament, or or a great Second World War." um veteran or something. So so I love that. It's so fun mm. keeping people guessing about what, what it's going to be and, and it not being straight jacketed. Um and that's something but you feel the pressures to do that because also you get used to a certain way of working. So you have to sometimes really shock yourself out of it. And we we did that the other day with a show we made about a trench. We deliberately kind of didn't do the voiceover at the start and the highlights <laughs> really you know we we made sure it was kind of weird and, and unusual. So but yeah it's it's a great it's a great point.
0: It's a real liberation. I mean, for the film that I did, I did one version just for the family, and then television came around and said, well, we want it. And they and, they, and I said, how long? I said, well, they said, well, an hour would be great. And I said, well, an hour, that's a lot. I only have 16 minutes down. I ended up negotiating, and I did a 2742. That's why I know the number. That is how long the half-hour slot was allowed to be. And in the, in the realm of podcasting, as you say, what I've discovered more and more is the interesting element of when the energy is good, let it go, let it, let it flow. The, of course, if you have an audience that says, well, I only want to dedicate 20 minutes to listen to Minter or whatever, or I only have 30 minutes. Well, that's the way it is. But if you have that energy, it's so liberating to allow yourself to keep on conversing and exchanging. And, and you get, you know, the, the people being interviewed and interviewing, are having an energy and i think that does transmit does flow through the earbuds
1: i agree i i strongly i really feel that the success of clearly this the dominance of on-demand content is partly a kind of tech partly tech thing is that mm-hmm. you can listen you can listen to this you can listen to Minter wherever you want on any device you don't have to be sitting in your next to your wireless in your kitchen but also it is isn't. it is an act you know, creative there is a side to it which is like it was clear in the nineties we were watching cable, and this is where Donald Trump came from. It's where Boris Johnson's come from. It's where there, there was, you know, in the nineties, we all watched cable news and it was so, it was obviously sterile. These politicians just, yes. And, 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 you know, entertainment figures in the entertainment world going, Hey, how are you? I'm fine. I'm just great. Okay. That's three minutes done. Let's cut to commercial break. I mean, it, it was this, it was like as formal as a sort of court pageant in in the, in the sort of early in early modern monarch's court in Europe, you know, it's a Baroque setting. It was all so, you could, you could, you, you, we all knew it was like a joke we were all in on. And then occasionally, very rarely, someone would say something rude or swear and their career would be gone. Do you remember like whole careers would disappear because someone would say a swear word or something slightly inappropriate. And now, you know, you've got, I mean, God, you've got Donald Trump tweeting out of the White House. And I do think it's a reaction to that. We, we all like to listen to real conversations. Mm-hmm. And actually traditional media wasn't delivering those things mm-hmm. or if it did, it was regarded as so incredibly exciting. It deserved an Oscar award, you know, like, you know, the documentaries where it would just feature a long interview with one person. It was like seen as the most cutting edge thing ever. And in fact, that's just real life. You know, we, we wanted to, so I completely agree. So some, sometimes my podcasts are 20 minutes and then sometimes they are two hours because wh- wh- why not? I mean, that's the, that's the reality of, of how we are in the, when we go to the pub and meet friends or chat on the phone we sometimes those conversations are quick and other times they'll change your life and they're intense and they're long and deep so uh, i, I just, it just feels that we're you know now when i watch i watch tv some or you know i, I watch content Dad, who's a who's a traditional journalist from the 60s 70s and 80s in the, U, in sure. the uk and and he he finds that modern world very liberating he, he gets very excited he kind of freaks out a little bit when he sees tv news journalists editorializing saying oh this is awful he that, that's not his he, he finds that difficult culturally but mm-hmm. the fact that people are so relaxed and you sometimes a camera drops into set or the microphone falls off and, and you have a laugh and the next door you know I, the, that he, he he finds that as a professional he wishes that it had been like that you know in the in the 70s he finds that so liberating and exciting that mm-hmm. that, that kind of anarchy can exist when because of the tech before, the sound recording, the fact that film was expensive and you had to get things exactly right, Mm -hmm. it was incredibly straightjacketed.
0: Storytelling. You're a storyteller. And I was wondering, I mean, I, you know, when I went to school in England, as you, I studied history and I remember how history was taught. And at the time there were some professors, teachers that, seemed to tell stories. But for the most part, it felt like I was slogging through dates, numbers of people, king this, king one, king two, king three. And it was sort of this chronological battery of information that I had to slog through. I was wondering from your perspective, how has history telling, storytelling changed? Uh, We've obviously just talked about the timing component, but I was wondering how else you see history storytelling change?
1: Yeah I mean clearly it's transformed right I mean my kids are obsessed with horrible histories um, it's transformed in the in the real world IRL uh, it's in real life you know you go to when I would go to a museum as a kid or a stately um, Hampton Court Palace it was a fairly austere place fairly off I think fairly forbidding place I mean my kids regard all those experiences now as like a fun park you know there's people Henry Eighth walking around there's you know there's interactives you know so so it's changed across the board and of course therefore it's changed in the, in the classroom as well i mean i i think history began as a sort of story and i think it's it's um, it all yeah but it but it, the, the teacher is essential and i had all sorts of different kinds of teachers like you some of whom almost put me off it but i think the tools available now are are so rich uh not not my sh- you know I- it was rare for us to watch video in the classroom setting in the 90s and i think it's now very common um video now that's embedded in in coursework and you know it's not it's uh it's not just helping the teacher kill a, a lesson it's actually video that's tailored and 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 useful to the to the sort of embedded in the lesson plan so i i think it's um i think we're in a world where storytelling's a lot easier now basically and I think, by the way, that world is—we're only at the beginning of it because tech. Every time I see a new augmented reality, virtual reality project, and you look at the price of those beginning to come down, look at the the the, the hardware now is is really impressive. I mean, we're only—we're scratching the surface, you know. So we think it—we think it's terribly exciting that we're now quite good at showing the Battle of Hastings in two D, you know, with lots of reenactors and swords and shields and everything. And but my God. Kids in twenty years' time, that they're going to be experiencing the Battle of Hastings like we can't imagine at the moment. So that this is a this is a this is a story that we are still at the beginning of.
0: So my observation, Dan, is and and I may be wrong, is that we've gone from a sort of a more general approach to the opportunity and option to tell personal stories as a a link into the bigger story. I mean, we've obviously had Band of Brothers and others have done that trick per se before, but I feel like there's, and I've seen you do it with your, when you did the uh, battle of Britain, you, 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 the narrative you wrote was through personal stories to tell the bigger picture. Is that something that is old or am I right in thinking that it's a little newer?
1: So that's right. So that's a good point. So that's new. And I think that comes from the richness of historical research that's being done that we all piggyback off. and and the internet has helped that enormously. So that, that those, it was, you know, it was pretty challenging to find, the, I mean, that Battle of Britain show that I made, that was not my company actually, but I, I was working with Lion, who also owned by the same ultimate owner as now our company. But uh, they are, they were astonishing. But they, but it, you know, you're looking for, so we would tell the story of a day of the Battle of Britain and the story, you know, the pilot's accounts, but the internet's made it pretty easy to find those pilots, their families, their archive their pictures their newspaper clippings so I was super impressed uh, and and it wasn't my research so I won't take the credit for it but I was super impressed with the researchers we would go on location and I'd say okay so today we're telling the story of R.F. Kenley being attacked by these bombers okay but, you know so far so good you could imagine that being in the 90s and you know maybe one account from a pilot now you've got the German pilots account the UK pilots account the pictures of the thing you've got you've got and and that's all because the because in deep in the engine room the big crowdsourcing historical projects going on and now that research is is not being lost it's all there it's being found it's it's being uploaded it's being shared it's whether it's through family history sites or uh, air aviation sites or Wikipedia or whatever it is so you, we're making it easier and easier for the researchers to be able to go so now when i'm thinking about a big project for the christmas truce this year the world war 1 christmas truce like you're just immediately assuming that there's going to be extraordinary resource available through the keyboard. Like I've got the two best books written about the Christmas truce. I'm leafing through at the moment. They're very useful, but you're thinking, right, well, what audio video um, and secondary historical and a new, and it turns out that, you know, it turns out that a newspaper in Scotland conducted lengthy interviews with a couple of the last survivors of the Christmas truce who happened to be living on the East Coast, of Scotland in like the late nineties, now, I don't know, but that's in the old days, you wouldn't have gone to that newspaper archive to find that those stories, particularly. So now it's quicker, it's easier, and I think you can sometimes underestimate, you know, we've, we're so used to it, you forget to celebrate just how extraordinary it's been as a kind of research tool. Uh, so you're right, it is the stories are there now, they're a lot easier. So you, you've got more choice, it's not dominated by well, the central narrative of like, here's the family tree of the Tudors, we know the big history, we've got like, or here's the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle telling us about this period. We've just got access to tons and tons more stuff now. And, and, I, and, and there's just more, there's tons of history being published. I mean, you know, it's a great example. There's Ed Caesar's just written his book, The Moth and the Mountain about a guy who would otherwise be forgotten. And he's just this beautiful book about a, one of the early attempts on Everest in the 1920s. And that now exists. He's like, it's like we're painting a huge big oil painting and that little tiny corner of it has now been just filled in that lovely and neatly, making it easier for historians of the future and teach the future to tell those stories.
0: It's, it's wonderful that you, you mentioned painting. It makes me think, I want to get back to the, 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 the storytelling in a moment, but painting in history, uh, is is awfully interesting because you're basically painting a moment it's hard to sort of paint a narrative in a painting and and yet you can of course through different devices but there was a second thing and uh, my through my wedding uh, through my father's wedding uh, I can be related to a painter of general called le Jeune, who was a general under napoleon and he would actually paint the scenes. and he. So as a general, he was really involved both in the strategy, participating, and in narrating what happened. And the thing that I learned was the idea of perspective. Are you gonna be painting it as a foot soldier? Are you gonna be painting it as a person on a horseback? Are you gonna be an eagle flying above? Do you have the big picture, the small picture? And, And it was just fascinating to think about how history telling happens through painting. And similarly, when you're talking about personal stories, now the issue is that you have, let's say, 100,000 stories to choose from. And that can become a nightmare. You know, I remember Audie Murphy, because that was about the only story we were allowed to be told, other than the, the numbers of people who did this and did that. It was all sort of lots of numbers and facts and figures. And then occasionally we had this little blip, one option, one story. Now we have a uh, a gazillion, you know, op- opportunities, and so the art of storytelling and keeping the context becomes all the more difficult.
1: Uh, you're absolutely right. I love General uh, Lejeune. He's the, one of the most famous um, biographers, isn't he? One of the most famous accounts of the polar period. He was it. He got didn't he get terrible frostbite in the Russian campaign or something. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh. Uh, yeah, it's really hard. I mean, yeah, as we as we now know more about. Uh, I mean, people—it's history should, you know, it's very accessible, isn't it? Some some people love the, love the, I mean, I still love the top-down history. I'm just reading a biography of Edward Grey and the outbreak of the First World War, and there's not a single mention of a normal person, in it? They're all just politicians and grandees and printers and dukes. And I love that, but I also love the, the kind of extraordinary amount of history that's being written at the moment about, quote-unquote, normal people, particularly about women. I mean, women, yeah. uh, uh, historians of women's history, are, are, are filling in a lot of those blanks, like that painting. I mean, we are just getting avalanches now of these women that we've forgotten to remember from the 1920s and 30s in particular. Uh, Presumably
0: led by your aunt.
1: Your uh, my aunt she's a, a, a brilliant historian, yeah, so she's done a bit of that. And But, you know, or, or a book that I read the other day about women inventors and scientists in the First World War, you know, the forgotten women who were there in Imperial College you know working on teams to, you know, do what the men would improve, efficacy of weapon systems and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, so, but come back to your question. Um, the So it is really hard to know. I mean, I think, God, can you imagine writing modern history? You know, I'm really struck by like, <laughs> someone like Dominic Sandbrook, who writes history of the 80s. Like, how do you write history of the 1980s? I mean, or the 90s? Like, you've got so much source material. How do you even begin to get your head around and choose how you're going to tell that story? And that's why when it's done well, it's like a, it's like a, a master crafts person. Uh, because... It just weaves, and Michael Wood's recent history of China was beautiful. It, it weaved huge, big strategic Chinese history in with poets and merchants and people and peasants. Uh, you know, it, t- it took breaks from the narrative. So, so yeah, it can be done, but it's it's a it's a really difficult thing to do. So,
0: we've been um, we're between podcasting and the TV side of History Hit. Do you see? Uh, a difference in the consumption with regard to the content? In other words, you know, medieval history, much better on TV, less good on podcasting. Is there any uh, play between the audio and the visual?
1: That's a really very good question. And we haven't crunched numbers enough yet. The audio, the, the, the visual we do find, perhaps we were a bit surprised and perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised in retrospect, but we do find that the video is a little bit more predictable um <laughs> the first and second world war do very well second world war is very well and the Tudors do well and kind of castles like high medieval sort castles do well. Uh, and i kind of maybe thought video-wise we would we would be able to get people our, our fans you know watching slightly different shows but we've definitely you see a lot more you see a lot more kind of um concentration around particular subjects in the video audio is very odd we actually can't find we actually can't really find any patterns uh to the audio um there's one or two breakout shows that you can see why they're particularly good and they often do skew a bit modern because if it's a veteran talking like an sas veteran of the falklands war talking about their experiences there you you kind of go okay i get that no that's kind of a pretty extraordinary thing to talk about um, but in terms of a historian giving you a kind of 20 minute, half an hour breakdown on a period of history, we, it's very weird. We get very weird results being thrown up. You know, we get deeply unusual. You know, the, the ones that I think are going to do well, like I think this is a bit of red meat. Let's get a D-Day episode out and shut that out there. That doesn't do particularly well on the audio. I think it's audio, it's in your feed. You listen to what's up or you skip a few Whereas TV, it's a Netflix experience. You're coming to it and just going, right, here's my big main menu. I'm, I'm not super interested in um, in suit, Ancient Egypt, but I, I, I will soak up the next, you know, the most recent World War Two project. So it, the, the, I think the behaviours are very different. And if I, mm-hmm. that's the way I, I mean, I, I watched, I, I, you know, when I'm watching TV, it's, I go onto my Netflix or, or whatever, and I go, I, I want to watch this show that I've heard about or whatever. But on my podcast, yeah, I just, I get what I'm given which I think a, is another, another reason for creators like podcasts, because we're all kind of narcissistic weirdos, right? And, and it's the good thing about podcasts is the audience just do tend to listen to one after the other. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. There's a greater intentionality to the video. You have to sit in a place, turn on a, a screen and, and, and presumably you might be with somebody, it's an event after a meal. Yep. I mean, and so it brings up this idea of, of Netflix because on History Hit, as as you know, I, I've been a thankful subscriber. Uh, I've noticed you don't have a recommendation engine a la Netflix. And so you're really kind of left to your own devices. I mean, you make your, you have your propositions up top, but it's not like a personal, based on your last thing you watch, this is what you should watch kind of thing is that something that you is on the docket now that you have some bigger pockets
1: yeah my uh, naive um, my naive take on the world seems to be that if if netflix invents something amazing a company like netflix is so amazing within two or three years there are going to be uh people out there offering cheaper white label solutions those kind of things for, for your for your and for your business so so we've had meetings with people who effectively the pitches? We 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 offer similar AI to what you're going to get at Netflix. So around retention, around understanding behaviour, around recommendation. So you know down to the fact that um, if you know some, you can tell if someone's about to churn off, they're going to cancel a subscription because their viewing patterns change, they interact much less, they give it one last go and then immediately stop What, whatever it might be. And Netflix immediately sends up a little red flag. So we could send that person a message going, hey, by the way, uh, we know you love Henry Eighth. Well, look at this, check that show we just got over. So, yeah, we are in the process of doing that kind of stuff. But you're abs- absolutely right. Uh, it is far less sophisticated, of course, than, than Netflix at the moment. And that, and that goes for everything. That goes to payment. That goes to subscription. I mean, if you if you go to the Washington Post, owned by Amazon, or jeff bezos which benefits from all of amazon's learnings around how to get us to pay for things which is a lot of learnings you know you go to the amazon yeah the washington post and you kind of breathe in the general direction of your phone you've just subscribed annually (laughs) recurring right i mean that's that's what it is so so whereas at the the start of our adventure three years ago we were like still kind of credit cards being sort of uploaded, you know entered and postal addresses like you know what state do you live in and and you could just see people falling out of the filter left right and center right just the funnel rather they would yeah it was a filter (laughs) they they were just collapsing out of the funnel and we eventually some brave god bless (sighs) their cotton socks some brave souls were actually getting into the you know through the paywall so so i think when when it comes to paywall, when it comes to retention when it comes to ai when it comes to behavior yeah clearly all of these things are going to be bolt-ons uh, and um, and but, the neat, but of course, but they're out there. The companies offering those solutions are out there.
0: And what about ratings and reviews by the users? Is that, I mean, felt, that feels like a, a lighter touch component, but then again, you know, you might say, oh crap, YouTube, hatred, spammers, you know, those type of trollers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we'd be, a good point. I mean, I we'd be pretty confident with the people that are inside the system and already subscribers. I think we'd be, but yeah, it's it's community management's probably just another another job, and and we'll get there. We think a lot about that because, of course, we're thinking uh, we want more obviously community engagement, um, but also in terms of people. I mean, a lot. Of, I mean, you know, films and ideas and are coming from people as well. So uh, we're already getting people within our community submitting films, uh, finished films, and film ideas, which is great. Mm. But whether and eventually there'll be probably a system for, you know. A, a community area um, for discussion and uh, and su- suggestion as you say in ratings that's that's for sure something that we've something that we've talked about but at the moment it looks a little bit too much for our our little team to handle
0: right sure um you got uh, the it seems uh more than a hundred thousand subscribers to the history hit tv side of things i was wondering
1: we're actually is that no, right? we're actually no we're, that's a, that is also a miss that was a miss was a very happy but that is, that's that's an
0: exaggeration. Yeah. I see. All right. Well, soon to be. Uh, the point I was going to ask was that uh, for us uh, during the the lockdown period, obviously people are are going to documentaries. There seems to be a a general play on Netflix and elsewhere towards documentaries. I, I was wondering what you, the relationship is with history. Is there a is is it because we want facts because there's so much fake news that history is is coming up, is there is it a nostalgic reassurance to do documentaries in a time of pandemia? How do you see the relationship we have?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think it depends on the audience. Um, I think a lot of people like history. A lot of people say to me on Twitter, just oh oh, stop talking about politics. I, I want I want history, and so I think for them, history is escape. Perfectly fine. Um, they find the past a, a place where you can be fascinated uh, and not made to be uncomfortable. Actually, yeah, they, that's what they. I, I'm different personally. I'm uh, the past is a place that makes me hugely uncomfortable um, because it hmm. challenges me and it, you know it's incredibly. Uh, just, it it makes you think about the present, about you, about life. So when I'm reading about in, enslaving our fellow humans. What I'm thinking about there is not oh I'm so clever I'm not saving fellow humans. I'm thinking about well, how are our how are our descendants going to regard our relationship with the animals which provide food for us if if we are still meat eaters, right? How how are future generations going to regard our our environmental practices? Uh, spoiler, you know they're going to think we were insane, right? Uh, and so therefore. History is something that's provocative and should be enormously uncomfortable. But anyway, so so some people I think just watch it for escapism, that's fine. I do think people who also turn to history, and I do hear this is true of university departments, since 2008, arguably 2001, one nine eleven, when the world clearly, uh, things ha- were happening, right? So in the 1990s, you'll remember just, you were very young, so was I. But there was a really powerful sense that, that history had kind of come to an end. It was all just super chilled. There was there were, there were some um it can, it, There was genocide in Rwanda, civil war in Congo that was convenient to ignore. But on the whole, Russia was like a vague democracy. China was beginning to trade, looked like it could be managed with an international system. Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, everything was like, well, this is all, this is kind of fine. This is where it all ends up, right? And 9 11 happened, then the gigantic uh, recession happened in 2008, and then COVID happened, re emergence of great power rivalry, uh, environmental catastrophe in the offing. So suddenly, we're all just like, oh, wow, okay, history didn't stop. We do need to, oh, it turns out we need to know about how Britain carved up the Middle East after the First World War, because we've got guys in, uh, you know, we've got guys ripping down, you know, in ISIS, ripping down that border and screaming about British, you know, British politicians 100 years ago. Um, turns out we do need to know about what happens when, society, when there's climate change and its effect on societies and agriculture and 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 resources in you know northwest Africa today you know it turns out we do need to know these things um, oh it turns out we do need to know what happens when nationalists try and subvert subvert democracy so so I think history is kind of back in that way as well and it, it was never away of course but we I think a lot of people and I know you see this undergraduate numbers a lot of people realize that history is pretty darn important and and Uh, And and fascinating, and all the other things. So I think it depends on audience and why people are accessing history. But I do think we're thinking about it more.
0: So the last question for you, Dan. So I went to university in the United States, and I studied a thing called decontextualization when it came to literary study. It it occurs to me, or it feels to me, that taken out of context, anything can be horrible, horrible. I was wondering what 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 comes to your mind when you use decontextualization and history. How do you? What's your? What's the association in your mind between those two words, two concepts?
1: Um, I, it makes me feel. Uh, it makes me feel very um, terrified. Really, uh, I will. Um, here we go. I'm just gonna. What I'm gonna do? I'm just pulling up a thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna give it a quick Google here, buddy. So I just want to get the, um,
0: Facts, right? You know, this is like Joe Rogan. We're we're like we're real time. <laughs>
1: um, I want to get the, the terms correct because I, I um, I spend my I basically you got recontextualization, which is a, uh, um, okay, here we go. Um, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, obviously, when you decontextualize someone, you sort of take something, you sort of take it out of its context. Which, it, 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 historians is like a is is quite problematic anyway. Um, and so I I, you know that, that this is a kind of argument around political science and history and so mm-hmm. that. So historians, so context. St- is,
0: statues, for example. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, exa- yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. So context is is hugely important. So like, is a is a statue of Robert E. Lee in a in a town. Uh, simply a memorial to a, a general in a war 150 years ago? Or do we learn when we look at the context in which it was put up that that was actually a statue put up in a town where there was a movement among its African-American uh, citizens to in particularly perhaps a focus of in the struggle for equal rights, but civil and political and social rights, economic rights in the, in the 60s. And was this put up as a, as a as a statement piece in the 60s or or was it erected uh way back in the immediate aftermath of the war when robert e. lee was something of a folk hero to the people of some people in the south so I, I you know so therefore historians are always really keen to make sure that we keep context uh we, that we are very very mindful of context right so so this and the good example is the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol that got toppled into the ocean uh, here in the UK. And, and he was a, and that was very deliberately put up, you know, that was put up hundreds of years after he lived as part of a, at a time of struggle between powerful new radical political forces in British society and, and an older aristocratic uh, patrician uh, way, out, outlook on the world uh, in the late 19th century so it's kind of it was nothing to do with like the grateful citizens of bristol putting up this statue of of someone who just died say i mean Benefactor. something like you know something like more like nelson's column perhaps although that's also has a context but where, where quite rapidly after someone dying you put up a, a a memorial um so i i you know i think uh decontextualization is obviously kind of problematic that point. however i also do like i like historical parallels i think it's i like examples i think it's important to think about why it is that you get the same things similar similar things happening in late Tang China as you do thousands of miles away in other empires that are suffering from external threats uh, domestic sort of corruption and malaise um, you know what like I think that's exciting in history I think it's kind of cool that you can look at parallels and think this is well that's interesting what's going what's going, what's going on here why do these systems why do these systems collapse um, not every single one is unique therefore, sorry every single one is unique but they're not all uh, completely different to each other uh, and I think that it is therefore like when you're studying the collapse of Italian democracy in the 1920s and, and talking and then and then using some of those lessons to think about Donald Trump today I think that is exciting and useful but you shouldn't but you should be mindful that everything has a has a context for sure.
0: It reminds me of what you were saying earlier where you say, well, I I still appreciate reading history, the old fashioned way, top down, because at some level, that's the sort of the the big picture. And if we get stuck, you know, swooped in by the individual who was in the battle, who was killed or this and that, and we sort of get overly drawn into the personal story, we, we can lose sight of the bigger picture. And for me, the bigger picture is the context. And so, as as we consume more and more sort of personal stories and the, and the lovely storytelling that happens we do need to link it back to the reality uh, of the time we can judge it through our own prism of today in today's context fine but we we shouldn't necessarily judge what they did then at that time with today's values
1: yeah of course that this is the whole that whole argument of course is correct uh i find the idea of sort of judging yeah i mean look it's hugely pro- heroes the whole idea of someone being a hero or having a statue the whole thing's really problematic anyway like i mean i no one should put a statue up of me like i mean it's like you, you shouldn't, i mean statues are weird they're, they're really old fashioned um uh, and so therefore the, the whole idea of like i find it very difficult going was the was the british empire good or bad was the roman empire good or bad? like I, I mean like what i I don't know, like what, by what standards? Like, what are you talking about? Exactly. Um, and and it's sort of unhelpful, in a way. I well, I think it's unhelpful. I mean, obviously, lots of philosophers and people cleverer than I spend a lot of time talking about this. But I don't understand. I don't understand. It, it is it like what what is looking back from the past? Most things are, are sort of in, everything's deeply imperfect, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing for there's nothing a single thing in the past. You go, oh, that's just unalloyed brilliance. By even the way, by, st-
0: still today. Yeah?
1: And and still today, of course. Today it's even harder, but because we know more. But even, even scientific breakthroughs in the past, you could argue, uh led to oh, that's amazing. All these wonderful scientists, the Enlightenment and before. Well, what they've created an economic system mm-hmm. and an energy system that means we've des- we're destroying life on Earth. So even things that you think are quite uncontested even dare i say god i don't know like things like medical breakthroughs of course they've alleviated extraordinary pain and suffering but we now have seven billion people on the planet which is too many like so i I, like if someone said to me i'm maybe i've been doing history for so long and talking to lots of clever people you you end up not knowing left from right but like someone goes was this like is (laughs) um was this vaccine is this vaccine good i'd have to stop and go like I don't, I don't know if the smallpox vaccine <laughs> because I'm suddenly now thinking like yes it, of course it is but we've got like the greatest problem that we've yet dealt with in the history of humanity is there are too many humans smashing up the resource of this planet and therefore like mm-hmm. oh I don't know so clearly I'm glad that I and my children and every, I'm glad no family has to go through the misery of burying their own children from smallpox but so yeah I find it very difficult that whole good and bad argument mm. I, and also I don't think it's very rewarding um, other than to say other than to say look none of these things that you've been brought up to regard as perfect are perfect and what that should tell you is that neither of the things that are around you today uh the things that whether it's the church your your political settlement your personal habits the way you live the way your society is organized don't don't go around thinking it's great because it it isn't and um it's not the platonic ideal form but yeah i think i find that whole area very. troubling
0: well my the role of history in my life has essentially been to remind me how darn lucky i am and and it and i feel like and maybe it's because i'm getting old dan because i'm 56 so far older but there's a, a notion of values that i may have a nostalgic feel for but somehow the what my grandparents went through which feels close enough. Their values are something to be respected. Obviously not perfect, like you say, but it's a reminder how we should cultivate good values and be thankful for what we have today, even if we have to share it with 7 billion other people. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show uh tell me if you had a final comment sure and uh how people can best follow you track you down mr snow
1: well you're absolutely first of all you're absolutely right the main purpose the main purpose of history for me is, is mental wellness i'm not joking i find i find it enormously improves my life when you've when you read about just a, how ex- extraordinarily lucky uh particularly our generation really might be because it might not be as good for the kids but um <laughs> if the science is right so so I feel it like unimaginable the fact that I was never conscripted to go and fight in a savage war uh, which I had no stake in the outcome and 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 health concerns pain relief dating apps you name it I mean we are extraordinary Uh, food security I mean uh, food security and then and then the the idea that we just expect the kind of diet that was only available even 100 years ago to the most unbelievably wealthy people in society we can now go Mm. and and purchase cheaply in the high street nearly nearly everybody's lucky enough to do that so you're entirely right in terms of finding me you can just go to the i'm overactive on twitter i'm the history guy on twitter but um and if you're interested in the history at it podcast it's wherever you get your pods so thank you very much indeed
0: my pleasure dan thanks again lovely to chat about a good topic and um carry on and good luck with history at tv thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minta dialogue show You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: lines